Thanks for watching today at wildwoodchurch.com. Now here's today's message. All right, good morning, Wildwood. Welcome back. Good to be back here this morning again. Uh, wow, what a great week. What a great week at VBX. Like Pastor Andrew said, uh, 200 plus kids, 130, 140 volunteers. We had 17 missionaries come up from, mission, uh, from Missouri, and we're going to see some of them after the service uh, or at the end of the service when we pray over, over a couple of them as they prepare to head out to Southeast Asia. Uh, they're one of our sponsored missionaries. So uh, what a great week. You know, Kelly, I am really parched. Uh, that, that song, Great I Am, and that just takes it out of me. I just, I, I feel like I'm singing, Andrew, as if no one else is singing in the room. And I have to, I have to, uh, babe, could you pay me my hydrogen peroxide? <clears throat> I am parched. Yeah, I'm out of water, so I just, I mean, uh, it's the same, essentially, right? Anna, you're a nurse. It's essentially the same, right? I mean, I researched this. It, it, it is essentially the same. It's hydrogen and oxygen. Right? I mean, they're both clear, odorless liquid. I mean, in fact, one would reason that when I'm out of breath, that I would want that extra oxygen molecule. Right? So, sports drink. Good idea or bad idea? Bad idea, that's right. Kids, do not try this at home. Yeah, it's a bad idea, but it's essentially the same, and yet, what does it bring? So water brings what? Kelly, you might actually hand me that water. <laughs> Almost out. Thank you. Water brings life. You can drink as much water. Well, I, I actually hear you can die of too much water. However, water brings life. Our bodies were made for water. Water brings life. And hydrogen peroxide, if you drink it, brings death and destruction. It's, it's simply, it's, it's remarkable that simply adding one oxygen molecule goes from life to death. What we were designed to drink, what our body was designed for, what God made us for was water, H2O. H-O-O-H, or hydrogen peroxide, does not bring life, even though it appears to be water but rather it brings death. Thus it is with sin, folks. Thus it is with sin. We think, man, sin makes me happy. Sex is not a bad thing in marriage, so why is it a bad thing outside of marriage? Just a slight twist. It's, it, it feels good. It, 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 it quenches the thirst. But it brings death, not life. We are thirsty and we crave something real. And what we were created for was fellowship with the holy God, made possible by a relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. And sin promises to quench a thirst, but all it does is destroy and bring death. Let's look here at Romans chapter 6, verses 20 through 23. And we'll see how Paul, he said in verse 19, uh, Josh, two weeks ago, did a wonderful job along with our youth band. That was amazing. That was a wonderful worship service with our youth team. 
and, and Josh was here to, uh, to preach through verse 19. And verse 19 says, present your members as slaves to righteousness, leading to sanctification. So you were once slaves of sin, and you were presenting your members of your body as slaves to uh, sin. But rather now that you've been changed, you've been saved, present your members as slaves to righteousness, leading to sa- uh, sanctification. And so Paul's assumption is that people that he's writing to, people in the church, the presupposition that Paul has is that if you're, if you're a Christian, you want to live right. If you're a Christian, you want to honor the Lord. That's Paul's presupposition. And that you see godliness as better than wickedness. That's Paul's underlying presupposition. And so here he goes in verse 20 through 23. Let's read it, then I'll pray, and then we'll jump in verse by verse. Paul says, For when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. But what fruit were you getting at that time from the things of which you are now ashamed? For the end of those things is death. But now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, the fruit you get leads to sanctification and its end, eternal life. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Now let's pray. Father, we thank you for your grace. We thank you that you love us. We thank you that you sent Jesus to die for us. I pray, Lord, that we would, we would cry out in our thirst for righteousness and we would find the living water of Jesus Christ quenches that thirst. We pray, Lord, that you would bless now the preaching of your word and our response to it. In Jesus' name. Amen. So in this, in this chapter, Paul personifies both sin and righteousness. He personifies them and he, and he characterizes them as if they are controlling powers. And assuming that the readers desire to live godly lives, now he's going to share with us how it is or why we ought to present the members of our body as slaves of righteousness rather than as slaves of sin. Josh, Josh's title from two weeks ago was, Whose Slave Are You? Because you're going to be a slave to sin or a slave to righteousness. And your members of your body are going to either be put into use under sin or put into use under righteousness. And so Paul presumes that those that are hearing this letter, those that are, that are in the church, that they see it as a good thing and a right thing that their members are presented as slaves of righteousness. Verse 20 says, For when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. So before you were justified, before you were made right with God and saved, born again, made alive together with Christ, before that, you were free from the restraints of righteousness. You were free from the restraints of of righteousness. What does that mean? It means you were enslaved to sin. So you were free to sin any way you wanted to sin. When you were dead in your sin and trespasses, you were free to sin any way you liked. Now, that freedom from righteousness sounds pretty good, right? It reminds me of that, that song, I'm on a highway to hell. Right? Like that whole biker vibe, you know, not... I'm not hating on any bikers, but it just had that, that bad boy vibe. You know, I'm free from righteousness. I'm not going to, you know, no one can tell me what to do, right? 
You were free in regard to righteousness. It sounds good in the moment, but it's not true freedom. Why is it not true freedom? Because we'll see in verse 21, the end of it is shame and death. Like, I'm free to enjoy my sports drink until I die from it. You're free in regard to righteousness, but that's not true liberty. It might be license, but it's not liberty. Now, granted, if there was no benefit to sin, who would sin? If it didn't feel good in the moment, who would do it? Right, your conscience tells you it's, it's not right. You know, you know that it's not right. God says it's not right. If there wasn't a benefit, then who would do it? No, sin feels good for a moment. Sin promises to bring happiness, but it fails to deliver. As the old saying goes, sin will take you farther than you want to go and keep you longer than you want to stay and cost you more than you want to pay. You ever heard that before? You keep chasing sin, it's going to take you further than you want to go. It's going to keep you there longer than you want to stay and it's going to make you pay more than what you want to. This is what James declares in, in James 1.15 then desire, desire, right? That, that, that's, a, that's a, what is desire? It's what you want. You, we don't desire pain. We desire something that's good. Desire when it has conceived, when, when it's full grown, right? Brings forth, uh, when it's fully grown, brings forth what? Death. We see this over and over again. That people are chasing their desires, and how many, how many stories have you heard of? Maybe you've witnessed it yourself. I have no doubt that there are people in here in this room who know all too well the truth of James 1.15. That they're chasing that, that ever evasive desire and it takes you further and, and, and you become less of yourself and ultimately you, you wind up, if not physically dead, a shell of yourself. That's what, that's what sin does. I keep drinking this peroxide. I, I shouldn't say keep. I've never drunk peroxide. But you drink peroxide. I actually looked this up. You start drinking hydrogen peroxide. It begins to wear down the tissue in your, in your throat and in your stomach. You, you might get a gas embolism because it oxidizes everything. And then it also destroys the good bacteria in your digestive system. It might feel good. I don't know. Maybe, maybe you get an oxygen high. I, I don't know. I don't recommend it. You don't need to find out. Right? I've never heard of anybody drinking it. But the point is that like sin, you keep dealing with this stuff. You keep consuming this stuff. It's going to kill you. And it's not the only brown bottle with a, a liquid inside that brings death. Am I right? So the question is not, does, does sin feel good? I mean, the Bible tells us that, that stolen bread is sweet. It's not a question of whether sin feels good. The question is, how did that work out for you? How did that work for you? 
That's where Paul goes in verse 21. Sin may feel good in the moment, but the time comes for a heart check. And for us to honestly ask the question, but, if, but what fruit were you getting at the time from the things of which you are now ashamed? So you look back on your life in sin, and Paul says, how did that go? What was the end result? How'd that work for you? When you were free to sin any way you wanted to sin, when you were free from righteousness, how did that make you feel after the high wore off? After the binge was over, after the euphoria had faded, how did that go? What was the fruit of that? How did it impact the relationships in your life? What impact did that have on your spouse or on your kids? What did it do for your employment? What did it do for the, the, the friendships that were in your life that, that were positive? What, what, what happened to those friendships? What about your mental health and your physical health? What was the fruit of the life that you lived of which you are now ashamed? What was the fruit you were giving, uh, you were getting? Examine your life before Christ. Reflect on this. We should spend some time reflecting, not dwelling in shame of the past. Notice that Paul says, from the time of which you, you are now ashamed, you are ashamed of that time, the, the previous life. You're ashamed of the things that you did. It's not that you live in shame, but you recognize that what you were doing, the things you were involved with, were shameful. At least if you are a born-again Christian. If you're a born-again Christian, you look back on your former life and you realize the life I lived was shameful and full of death. Shame is the byproduct of sin, but death is the end result. Shame is the byproduct of sin, but death is the end result. For the end of these things is death, Paul says. Death entered the world through the sin of Adam in three ways. Spiritual death, then relational death, and finally physical death. First came spiritual death. What happened as soon as they heard God in the Garden of Eden, what did they do? They hid themselves. There was separation from God for the first time. There was separation between God and man, spiritual death. And then came relational death, the curse of the marriage relationship. Marriage was forever twisted and, and cursed and hard, just like the, the ground of the earth that Adam was going to work at the sweat of his brow. Now marriage relationship is, is, is cursed and, and is hard. Eve, you will desire your husband's role, and Adam, you're going to dominate your wife. That's Genesis 3. And then came physical death in Genesis 4. The first death came just one chapter later. It's the product of both the spiritual death and relational death. And what was the first death recorded in the Bible of a human being? Cain killed his brother Abel. Cain murdered his brother Abel. Death. 
Ultimately, we all die physically, relationally, spiritually. And I think that Paul has in mind all of these aspects of death when he writes that the end of those things is death. Sin leads to death, physical death, spiritual death, eternal separation from God, but also death in a thousand ways before those happen. Verse 22, he says, but now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God. In other words, the Lord has done a work in your heart that you would never be able to do for yourself. Now that you have been set free, If you're a slave, do you set yourself free? Do you decide that you're just going to make yourself free? No. You have been set free. God did something in your life, changed your heart, and set you free from sin. He says, now that you've been set free from sin and become slaves of God, the fruit you get leads to sanctification. Sanctification is a process of becoming more like Christ every day for the rest of your life. And it's in eternal life. So sanctification instead of shame, the great exchange. Sanctification instead of shame. Life instead of death. Why would you look back on your former manner of life and go back to it. If I've got water up here, or even if I didn't have water up here, why would I go to this? Death instead of life. What Jesus has done is brought life instead of death. Great exchange. Why would you go back to that which robs you of life and joy and health? Why would anyone who has tasted and seen that the Lord is good go back to the life of which they are now ashamed? It does feel good momentarily, Eric, and it's a wrestle. It is a wrestle. It says, verse 23, for the wages of sin is death. What you have earned from your old life was death. Talking about eternal death, but also death while you live. What you earn from a sinful lifestyle is death, not only eternally, but also while you're alive. And, 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 And some of you know exactly what I'm talking about. You have experienced the death of relationships. Maybe you're rebuilding them slowly over time, and it's a wrestle, Eric. It's a wrestle. But the wages, what you earn from sin, is death. Romans 12, 19 says, vengeance is mine. I will what? Repay, says the Lord. What you earn, praise the Lord for rain. Send it, Lord. Send it. What you earn in your sin is, is death, and God being just will repay. Now, let me ask you something. You think, well, you know, it's not, I mean, why would God pay my wage? How many of you are, you go to work and you say, you know what, if you want to pay me my wage, or if you don't, it's okay, no big deal. Right? Justice demands that you get paid for what you earned. 
And if the wages of sin is death, guess what God's going to do? He's going to pay that. Because he's just. It's right. It is just for God to repay what you have earned. In fact, what Paul describes here when he says the word wage, it was a term used for the, the daily stipend that centurions or commanders would give to their soldiers to sustain their life. So that's the word, the wage. Here's a daily stipend to sustain your life. Now, the irony is that Paul says that what death does is it daily destroys your life. Whereas the wage that a commander gives a soldier sustains his life, what sin does is give you a wage that takes your life. Why would we go back to it? Why would we go back to it? Because it's a struggle, Eric. Because it's a struggle. But listen, Paul is refuting the idea that his gospel of grace causes people to want to go back to a sinful, licentious life. It does the opposite. It does the opposite. What it does is it causes us to look back on our previous life and recognize, I would never want to go back to that. I tried it once. I don't want that anymore. What I'm thirsty for is life, not death. I want Jesus, not sin. Amen? Sometimes you've got to tell yourself this. I, from now on, from now on, when you think about falling back into sin, I want you to think about Pastor Brian and his hydrogen peroxide and how foolish it would be for me to drink this. The wages of sin is death, but, verse 23 continues, the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. That word gift here is the word charisma or charisma, and it means grace. And Paul reminds us here that we are no longer under law, but we are now under grace. We have been saved by grace. We have been set free from sin by grace. He has enabled us to say no to sin. Do you recognize, Christian, that when you've been set free from sin, you have the ability to say no to sin? That the Holy Spirit puts that power within you. He works within you to say no to sin. You can say no. We are no longer dominated by sin because we are no longer enslaved to sin. Sin pays us death, but God graciously gives us life. And isn't this a beautiful representation of what's happening right now? Isn't our ground thirsty? And here's this, here's this rain that comes down and gives what? Life! Thank you, Jesus! He wants to give you life, not death. What you earn is death. What God gives graciously is life. Now, regarding eternal life, Daniel Doriani has this amazing quote that I want to read for you. It says, when we have remained with the Lord and his children for 10,000 years. Ready? Watch this. Not a day, not an hour will have been spent. We will be, not be one second closer to the end of eternal life. 
and what a life it will be. Forever dwelling in God's light without tears, pain, or loss. Enjoying the best of song, of worship, of feasting, of the presence of blessed Jesus. And we will be with him forever. Wow. Eternal life. But life, just like death, is not only something that we experience after this life. We experience the wages of sin, death, in this life, and we experience eternal life in this life. It is a promise for us right now. Look at what Jesus said about eternal life in John 6, 47. He says, truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me, what? Has, that's present tense, has eternal life. So when does eternal life begin? It begins the moment that a person believes the good news of Jesus Christ. It begins the moment that we place our faith from him, in him and we are brought from death to life. I heard a pastor say before, whenever Jesus meets with a sinner, scripturally, whenever Jesus meets with a scripture, uh, sinner, and today I would argue, whenever Jesus meets with a sinner, he offers him a way out. He does not wink at sin. What would Jesus do when he meets a sinner? He would offer a drink of living water. Whoever thirsts and hungers and thirsts for righteousness, he will be quenched. When Jesus meets a sinner, he offers him a way out. He doesn't wink at his sin. Whereas sin ultimately pays us eternal death, and produces death in us in this life, God's gift of grace gives us eternal life and also life in the here and now. In other words, Jesus not only saves us from hell, but he gives us life right here. And he changes our lives. In other words, justification leads to sanctification. If you are justified, made right with God, declared not guilty by God, you're indwelt by the Holy Spirit, and you are being changed for the rest of your life, Eric. It's a wrestle. But you are being changed by the Holy Spirit. Justification leads to sanctification. Those who have been justified are being sanctified. If you're in Christ, the Holy Spirit is in you. Your salvation changes things. Your salvation changes relationships. It changes your character. It changes your heart. It does the opposite of what Paul's critics were saying about him. It doesn't lead us into licentious living. Grace and knowing that God forgives all of our sin has forgiven all of our sin. That doesn't lead us into licentious living. It leads us into praise and worship. Because it reminds us of our former life, that we were that we are ashamed of that life. It was it was death. Lord, why would we go back to that? Our eyes have been opened. Our hearts have been changed. If it's still a wrestle for you, the answer is Lord Jesus, change my heart. I don't I don't want to continue to struggle with this. Change my heart, Holy Spirit. Do a work in me that only you can do. And believe him to do it. The early church father, John Chrysostom, 
says that the new life is evident in you and that you recognize your past life for what it was. The greatest evidence that you are in Christ right now, today, is that you look back on a life before Christ and you realize that that life was full of shame and death, that you have been changed. Now that's a message that the world doesn't want to hear. We live in a culture that says it's hateful to say things like what you believe or what you do is wrong, is shameful, and leads to death. This is not a popular message in our world. It's not a popular message to say that to practice, to live in sin is shameful. It's no accident that June is called Pride Month and LGBTQ is the new religion of our culture. It's a culture of pride, it's a culture of death, a religion of death, it's a religion of mutilation, it's a religion of denying the created order. Now some people would say that the, the mantra of our age is let people love who they wanna love and be who they wanna be. But is that really the loving thing to do? That, that's, 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 a, that's a real question is let people love who they want to love and be who they want to be. Is that the real loving thing to do? Here, I'm going to, we'll put it to the test. I'm, I'm going to do it. Is anybody going to stop me? Come on, Troy. You going to stop a brother? Come on, man. Yeah, I'm not going to drink it. That would be a poor example. I did, to all the kids, I did not drink any. And I recommend that you don't drink any either. But why? Let me drink it. I want to drink it. Let me drink it. Why not? What? Because you love me, Cecil. You won't allow me to poison myself and bring death to my body. We are accused of being hateful, of being bigoted, of being intolerant. You are some bigoted people. You won't let me drink hydrogen peroxide. You are full of hate. You won't let me do what I want to do. I want you to ask yourself, what is the fruit of the LGBTQ agenda? How is, that, how is that working out in the lives of its adherents? This is not a judgmental position. I want you to reasonably ask yourself, what is the fruit of this agenda? Let's talk about mental health. The LGBTQ agenda has nearly universal corporate, social, and government affirmation, and not just affirmation, but celebration. And what are we seeing happening with the rate of suicide among those in the LGBTQ community? 
they continue to increase. To be LGBTQ today is to be a hero in our culture. To To be lauded, to be elevated, to be lifted up, and yet what is happening among the people who are adhering to this, who are believing the lie? Their mental health is going down. And the suicide rate is going up. Think about the fact that of what this does to the perception of truth and reality. Don't you feel like we live in a very confused culture right now? Up is down, down is up, right is wrong. It's very confusing. The perception of truth and reality, there's no room for debate any longer. There's no room to agree to disagree. No, if you resist this ideology, you are hateful. In fact, some of you might be thinking that right now about me. You're hateful and you're bigoted. Well, I just want to let you, I want you to let me drink this peroxide. I'm just going to sit it right here as a constant visual. Come on, Jack. Here. There we go. Can you see it? All right. Listen, these people are thirsting for life. They are enslaved to sin just like you and I were enslaved to sin. And what they need is not affirmation, but rather compassionate declaration and proclamation that life is in Jesus, not in changing their body. To affirm their sin is the least loving thing to do. Because you love me, you said don't drink it. In fact, if you let me drink it, what would that say about you? That you hate me. Because you know it brings death to me and harm to me. Sin promises to liberate, but all it does is destroy and enslave. It confuses and isolates. What people need to hear from the church, listen to me, what people need to hear from the church is a loving invitation to find life in Jesus Christ, not affirmation of their sin. When Jesus sees sinners, he offers them a way out. He doesn't wink at their sin. This sin is destroying individuals and families and children. Think about the innocence of children. Think about when is it appropriate? What what kind of sexual exposure is appropriate for young children? Does it seem appropriate for family-oriented events to have drag queen Strippers? Does that meet with with reasonable expectation of what is right to expose children to? It does not. Now, lest we be hypocrites, we can point out one sin. We can't ignore other sins. We We can't point out this LGBTQ and say, we'll see how evil this is while we tolerate 
pornography and radical feminism. Now that may seem like a stretch, but listen, all three of these are cut from the same cloth. We can't look over here and say, well, the LGBTQ agenda that is so pervasive and ubiquitous in our culture is evil and it destroys while turning a blind eye to pornography and radical feminism. Now, man, we've already addressed this. Since October, we've been addressing pornography. You know that we're tackling this head on. It's not going to go away. And I want you, we are now, what, two months, in fact, two months to the day from our You Are Not Alone men's rally, where I want every man of, uh, every man of this church to gather in this building, in this room, to behold the glory of God and let it confront our sin. And even if you're not uh, addicted to pornography, I want you to be here as an encouragement to come alongside other men and say, you are not alone. Amen? We don't have to look far to see the effects of pornography. What is the fruit of pornography? Some people say, well, it's innocent. And I'm very afraid of this AI development because I believe there are going to be people that say, well, it's not even a real person that I'm engaging with. And they're going to get sucked into this and it's going to be disastrous. But what is the fruit of pornography in our world? Well, it, divorce, addiction, depression. Pornography makes men weak and passive. Guys will not lead family worship with their kids on a Monday when they've looked at pornography on a Sunday night. It makes them weak and passive. It destroys. Not to, to, to speak nothing of the fact that men, listen to me, you need this reality check. When you click, you contribute to child trafficking. When you click, you contribute to child trafficking. The child trafficking industry is funded by the pornography industry. It's fueled by that. It's fed by that. The church ought to be the one that destroys pornography just like we destroyed slavery in the 1800s. It brings death. It brings destruction. And we're dealing with it head on. Now, women... Radical feminism is a problem just like porn is. The idea that you don't need a man or that, that, uh, that uh, you can be the same as a man, that there's no distinction, that there's no difference, that's no more from God than the idea that, men you can use women for your satisfaction is from God. God created man and woman to complement one another, not compete with one another. Radical feminism invaded the church in the 1970s when the mainstream churches, who now, by the way, those of the mainstream evangelical denominations that brought in radical feminism in the 70s are today ordaining homosexual and transgender uh, priests. These are, these are cut from the same cloth, folks. These issues are joined together. They may not feel that way to you, but they are cut from the same cloth. So radical feminism came into the church in the 1970s, and these people said, we need a new hermeneutic. We need a new way of understanding and interpreting Scripture if we want to be relevant to our society. And it came to be known as evangelical feminism. 
and it promised to liberate women. That was the premise. In 1963, Betty Friedan, the feminine mystique, the author of what was called second wave feminism or radical feminism, Betty Friedan said that women who work in the home live a miserable life. And the only way that we can truly liberate women is to remove them from the home. Now, let me just say at the outset, because I know that I just lost some of you. We have women on our staff. I don't believe, women, that you can't work outside the home. I'm just telling you the facts. Betty Friedan said that the only way for women to be equal is if we liberate them from the home in 1963. By the 1970s, it had made its way into the evangelical church. And what is the fruit? What is the fruit of radical feminism? It promises to liberate. It promises to, to rescue women from miserable lives. What is the fruit? Fewer marriages, more divorce. Now, this is where I say pornography and radical feminism operate as a double-edged sword. Women say, I don't really need you. And you're getting your satisfaction from hundreds or thousands of women in magazines or online. So why would we stay together? Fewer marriages, more divorce, the birth rate has dropped. Do you, do you have any concept of what happens to a culture when the birth rate, birth rate drops below 2.1 child children per woman? The culture will cease to exist. You can't come back from it. What is the, what is the um, American woman birth rate today? 1.65. The median age of our country in 1973, mid-70s, was 28. That means 50% of people in America were younger than 28, and 50% of America were older than 28 in the mid-70s. Today, that is aged to 39. Why? Because... Fewer marriages, fewer children. You look to China, what's going to happen in China in the next generation? They're so top-heavy, they're going to topple over, and that's going to happen to us. Thank you, feminism. Thank you, radical feminism. What about that idea that, that women who are, who are enslaved in the home, they're miserable? Well, certainly, after 50 years of, of liberation we would find that women are happier today and that would be false. Women report being less happy today than in the 1970s. What is the fruit of pornography? What is the fruit of radical feminism? What is the fruit of LGBTQ agenda? It is death and not life. Now, you don't have to be addicted to pornography and you don't have to shout your abortion and you don't have to change your pronouns for you to recognize or for you to have experienced the fruit of death in your life from these ideologies. You simply let it go unchecked. You simply go along with this 
script that is playing in the background. It is antithetical to scripture and it is the culture of our day. Everyone in this room and everyone watching online was either born into this culture or was a young adult raised up in this culture. It is ubiquitous. It is everywhere. And the only thing you have to do is not check it. The only thing you have to do is not think about it, not ask the Lord to show you, not ask the Lord to show your, uh, to reveal this in your heart. How am I believing the lies of my culture? Let the ideology of pornographic culture run in the background and you will view every woman as a sex object rather than as a soul. Let the ideology of radical feminism run in the background of your mind and you will bristle at the mere mention of submitting to your husband. Let the idea of the ideology of the LGBTQ agenda run in the background and when your friend comes to you and is believing the lies of that ideology, you will see no reason to tell him the hope of Jesus Christ. And culture will win. This is a heart check. The wages of sin is death. And just like you won't allow me to drink this peroxide, I won't allow you to believe the lies of our culture which speak against the word of God. Because it breeds death not life. And church, I love you too much to let you drink the lies of our culture and reap death. Father, we love you and we thank you for Jesus. Thank you for life and mercy. Father, it's a tough sermon. I need you to do the hard work It is a wrestle. And I pray, Jesus, that, that, you, that you help us, that you change our hearts, that you show us as we examine ourselves, Lord, how have we believed the lies? How have we drank the poison? Lord, give us living water. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Hey, thanks so much for watching online. I hope that this message has inspired you to greater faith, has encouraged you, maybe convicted or challenged you. We're grateful to be able to provide this content to you online, live and on demand. If you haven't done so already, follow us on Instagram, like us on Facebook, subscribe to us on YouTube so that we can get this content right to you as soon as we upload it. But you know, we believe that as a follower of Jesus Christ, that you need the body of Christ. You need the local church. And so if you're in the Quad Cities, let me invite you to personally join us in person for our gatherings on Sundays at 9 a.m. and 1040. If you're not in the Quad Cities, I want to encourage you to go find a local church that teaches the Bible, that serves the community, that loves Jesus, that gives grace. Well, hey, thanks again for watching, and we hope that you were blessed.